Hello and welcome back to Belonging. I'm Erica Young. In this episode, we're going to explore what happens when students don't feel seen in school. We're calling it the invisible child. My group noticed this weird stone. It didn't have a name on it and it said, in memory of all the Chinese who lived and died in Silverton and who were denied burial in Hillside Cemetery. It seemed kind of racist to me. Later on in this episode, we're going to hear from students in Colorado who uncovered some hidden history in their town, a group that was erased from history books, made invisible, and these students brought it to life. But first, we're going to go to New York City. That's where Ingrid Wong lives. We're going to talk to her about how she worked with her kid's teacher to make sure they felt seen. Up until this point, I've worked mostly with African-American Latino students, and so my orientation really wasn't about Asian-Americans. I have a few Asian-American students throughout my career. Ingrid Wong grew up in Hawaii, but now she lives in Brooklyn. Like me, she used to teach social studies. Ingrid has two children. I was a parent of um, Asian-American kids, and they're biracial, but they or multiracial, actually, um, they they walk around the world, people thinking they're Asian because of how they look. And, um, and I started to notice that they felt there was no narrative for them. And, and it made them la- less empathetic about other groups' oppression or centrality. And that made me really uncomfortable because like if you don't have empathy or understand why so much time is dedicated towards the history of African-Americans or Latino people, um, because you are frustrated that nobody ever talks about you, then there's some, there's a larger problem, right? Cause then it leads back to this whole idea of um, like invisibility and that why don't people find it important to talk about us when we've, been in this country for 200 years and there is a history of um of oppression so seeing yourselves in curriculum mm-hmm. in your kids classroom you know for a while i just kind of accepted that as long as they had like a multicultural education it would be enough um so and also i had the chance of having this teacher who i knew was responsive to um issues of anti-racism and so i felt she would be receptive plus we are entering covid And there were all these little rumblings of anti-Asian aggression. And I kind of knew it was going to happen because of the history of scapegoating. So I was like, okay, we're about to hit an economic downturn. Like something's going to happen. And it did. And and I honestly was somewhat scared to go outside alone. I felt even my kids were a shield because I wouldn't be alone. When you were growing up, you did not see yourself in curriculum. How did it feel being overlooked? I honestly, I didn't even notice, like I had internalized like the superiority of white and European culture to the point where I actually distrusted Asian teachers because I didn't think that they were as like qualified. It's really messed up. I've had to undo all this programming. And I think that's why I'm so shocked when Asian students even embrace me because I still carry this sense of like not being credible or trustworthy sometimes, even with my own people, you know? And so they only hired East Coast educated males because it was a prep school in Hawaii. So it's like, it's so wrapped up in the history of colonization. What is the impact or danger in that happening for students? One of the dangers is that you grow to be like a racist. You can't give yourself a free pass because you happen to be a minority. Like you can still uphold and have damage. And I think it does that internalized white supremacy culture leads you to perpetuate that mindset. And also leads to like feelings of inferiority at the exact same time. 
So I, I think that's kind of what I've been, I grappled with for a while, you know, just undoing this feeling of superiority coupled with inferiority. <laughs> it's really, really confusing. I don't think I'm the, I don't think Asians are the only ones who experience this either. No, definitely not. But you know what's important? Like to have people say, yeah, all marginalized groups go through that. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't take away from the fact that that experience is yours. Mm -hmm. It is yours. It was not just or right for uh, you to go through that or Asians to go through that. But eventually we've got to come together and say, these are the experiences. So how do we shift that or change that? I think part of schooling is having a strong sense of self. But if you're never, if you don't ever hear your group or your experience discussed, how can you have a strong sense of self? And so I think people don't realize how much mental health issues, how many mental health issues exist in the Asian American community, um, and and how and and how isolated we are. I think there have been recent stories, like I think one of the New York Times writers wrote something like Asians are the loneliest group. Right. So you don't get to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You don't get to be broken or need help. And and then you suffer in silence mm -hmm. and suffering in silence can build a resentment. Mm -hmm. it, it leads you to not understand or sympathize with other groups mm -hmm. because I, I did this on my own. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And when COVID uh, came around, the racist comments and things that were said was absolutely horrible. And now Asian people are saying, listen, we are beat down and people are doing negative things to us. Not negative things. Forget that. Let's be real. Y'all violent. Mm -hmm. Y'all beating us and spitting on us and murdering. That's like, stop. Something's got to stop. Something's mm -hmm. got to be done. And I've heard people say, listen, that's not our fight. Mm -hmm. Because the divide, mm -hmm. the pitting people against each other makes you feel like it's not your fight. Mm -hmm. But it's about shifting that group of other into realizing that we are all others, right? And so, you know, now we got to talk about bridging the gap. Well, how do you bridge that gap in education? How do you talk to teachers? Like, it seemed like the teacher that you were in contact with, her name is Kristen, right? Mm -hmm. And Kristen had already addressed some Black Lives Matter issues, et cetera. But what I thought was unique was that you, you, constructed this letter to send to her and you were kind of nervous like what am I going to get back mm -hmm. even to a teacher who was woke you were kind of like mm -hmm. "Ooh, what am I going to get back mm -hmm. why why were you nervous I don't have a lot of confidence that this is important or a priority and that's really unfortunate and I think there are other Asian Americans who are way more confident than I am about it and I've had to lean on them and many of them are younger than me because, and I think it's a lot of it because of my own shame around anti-blackness in my community and also, and also my acceptance of being marginalized. So part of it was being dismissed, my fear of being dismissed, my fear that it wasn't important would come to light. I think that was, and then also worried that there'd be retaliation, which I knew she wouldn't do, but there've been other teachers where like, when you're kind of a pain in the ass, like they sometimes like don't give you this, their kid, the same opportunity or attention. And so in general, like I fear not what I'll get, but what my, what my child will get. Yeah. I fear that this is already a world set up where my child is invisible. Um, but if you're invisible, sometimes you can float by, but mm -hmm. then if I make my child visible, mm -hmm. then they will wear 
the result of me inquiring, even though it is my right, yeah. even though it is my thing to do. I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. Yeah. Like a lot of folks don't make noise because they want to make it right for their children. But to make it right for your children, you have to make noise. So Ingrid and I got on a call with her son's fourth grade teacher in Brooklyn to talk about how that mom noise was heard and what it led to. The teacher's name is Kristen. When I received that email, one of the main messages I got from it was that Asian identities are extremely diverse and complex. And so it's hard to even figure out a way to simplify that huge range, that racial group into one single story. And also that the absence of Asian representation in our curriculum um, is a problem. I didn't want my kids to go this long not feeling seen in the curriculum. And also I felt that their empathy with the anti-racist themes in your curriculum um, would not have been as strong if they were not named so it was worth it to me to take that risk for them to just have better empathy um, if they would just be, you know, given some sort of nod in the more formal curriculum. Well, then COVID hit. I mean, hit me different because of the, the collaboration I had with Ingrid and the other parents in the class. And I felt it felt very important to me to put as much time and attention um, into... Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month as Black History Month. I took that on sort of as like a personal challenge. Like this, this is an area I need to stretch myself. It felt very important to me to have a whole class novel that we read that brought in more Asian American representation. And I didn't necessarily want a chapter book that focused on the marginalization and repression of Asian Americans. I didn't want to perpetuate that single story. So I read a bunch of books. So now I have to ask the question, who is this Kristen anti-racist educator? Who are you? I resist the label that I am anti-racist. I think that that's a journey um, that I strive to be. And I'm always learning but it's not a destination that has some finality to it. I'm a white, cisgender, female, queer, middle-class teacher. I've become much more aware that those identities often make schools and classrooms very safe spaces for me. And I grew up always wanting to be a teacher. Both my parents are educators. I tell this story of uh, when I was, I have a younger sister, she's five years younger than me. And my favorite thing to play when I was little was school. And I took my closet and I removed all of the clothes and all of the shoes and turned it into a classroom. So teaching is, is deep in the bones. And I've been teaching for, I think, 15 years. And I think in the last 10 years, I have really 
focused more energy and more effort into what it means to not just be a well-intentioned white teacher, but a politically minded, um, anti-racist driven educator. Why do you think it's so hard for, and I'll name it, white female educators or white educators to hop in and say, Hey, this, I got to address this or, Ooh, I had a blind spot. Why do you think that is? I think teachers come from a place of love and good intentions. And so from that place, it's really hard to imagine that you're doing damage because you have the good intentions, you have the love, you have the passion, you have the commitment. I mean, teaching's hard. Adding another lens onto this already hard work can feel maybe daunting and too overwhelming, but that's the work. We're always teaching, always. Whether it's written down formally as a learning objective or not. So I'm either teaching, striving towards anti-racism, anti-bias education, or I'm promoting it. Good intentions are not enough. Intentions versus impact. Do you think that um, Ingrid's pushing how do you think that impacted the students in your class in a different way that they wouldn't have seen? I, I, I would want to know what Ingrid's a response to that. I mean, her son was in my class at this time. When I asked him about like the video that you showed um, Asians like me. People sometimes say that Nobuko, just forget about Japanese-ness. Just open up yourself more and be more expressive and be more upfront and straightforward. That goes back to the stereotype of like, oh, like no one talks about Asians because Asians don't speak up. My parents didn't want He's like, I don't want to talk about it. It was really sad. I was like, sad, really? What, what did you watch? You know, I thought I saw this video and, um, and I watched it. And it really is like young Asian Americans talking about just being stereotyped. Every time I meet somebody new, the question always comes up, where are you from? And I always want to say Minnesota, but you know what they mean. And he was like, I just feel so bad for you. <laughs> I'm like, you're Asian too, dude. <laughs> like, you're not exempt. <laughs> so I'm like, it's like that very, you know, that distancing first, like, of, like, that's not me, you know, and it showed how important it was because the first reaction to seeing any element of marginal, even marginality made him so uncomfortable. Mm. The point of the email that I was kind of trying to say to, you know, Kristen was like, it seems like the other issues you're tackling add this other level of identity that maybe like you're not maybe attributing to the Asian American experience. I don't think it was the first time he realized that Asian Americans had issues of marginality, but maybe it was the first time he learned it in school. And so it, it put a different frame on it, right? It's different than being teased or like he's been teased before for being Asian, but now it's like, it's like academic, it's in the formal curriculum. And so he's grappling with it in a more global way, maybe. I have two younger sisters who are 10 and eight, and I really feel it's my responsibility to help them come to terms with the identity crisis I know they're going through and bridging the gap between 
the American culture that they deal with at school and the Asian culture they deal with at home. It is the responsibility of the educators to authentically represent the students that exist in their classrooms so they can see themselves in their curriculum. And I, um, we watched, we watched hair love and I had a, a student shout out like, that's me. And it was so beautiful. And I was like, that's, that's why we do this. So that even if a child doesn't exclaim that out loud, but maybe they can think that for a second in their head, that's me. So I definitely understand the baby yelling out in the classroom, like, that's me, like, you know, as a sense of pride and not hiding away. So Ingrid made some mom noise and it worked. Kristen stretched herself as a teacher, and she prioritized making sure that Asian Americans were represented in the curriculum. The power in this is that Kristen was already an open thinker. She was already a teacher who pressed change, but she knew that wasn't the end of the journey. She knew that to be conscious, to be anti-racist, to be inclusive, it's ongoing work. Ingrid told me a part of what inspired her to reach out to Kristen was this project that happened in a tiny school in the mountains of Colorado. She showed me a video. My group noticed this weird stone. It didn't have a name on it, and it said, in memory of all the Chinese who lived and died in Silverton and who were denied burial in Hillside Cemetery. It seemed kind of racist to me. I watched the video, and it brought me to tears. Yeah, me too. For all the Chinese workers who were not able to be buried here. You couldn't give these people a resting place after breaking their backs. It depicted a fourth and fifth grade class um, that was engaged in an inquiry study where they discovered a Chinese-American burial ground and um, learned the history of um, the workers who, and, who had lived there before and had advocated for the inclusion of these artifacts in their local museum. I'm going to let Ingrid take us to Silverton, Colorado, to meet teacher Whitney Gaskill and students Alejandro and Corelli. They're in eighth grade now, but they were in fifth grade when they did this project. And they're cousins. Yes, we're cousins. We're just 10 days apart. <laughs> yeah. We're related to half the people here. <laughs> when I had them in my class, it was just like teaching a giant family. They have so we're many. <laughs> Dylan, we're related to Jackie, Alexis. Mm -hmm. What is it like in Silverton now? Really small. Uh, oh, it's really small. And there is no Japanese, there's barely, there's no Japanese Americans here. And there's only like one Chinese American person here. Mm -hmm. What's the total population? Like 600. Mm -hmm. 34. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Which is in contrast to when mining was booming and when there were many Chinese Americans here. There was a lot of people. There were people from all over the world living here. My grandpa found Silverton and my mom just like fell in love with it. And so like when I was a baby, she like kept coming back to Silverton and Mexico. So then we just stayed here for like better work for mm -hmm. them. What about you, Whitney? I'm from Colorado, 
Um, for many generations, my um, ancestors were homesteaders on the Eastern Plains. So tell me more about the discovery, how you discovered the gravestone um, of Chinese, or, or not the gravestone, but the monument for mm-hmm. Chinese Americans. Okay, so we went up to our local cemetery and we were just writing down uh, people that we saw that are from the around the time that that happened, mm-hmm. around the time that they were being discriminated, like being rude towards the Chinese. And so we went up there, and we one of my one of our classmates, Quinn, he saw the a tombstone that said something about it was an apology, right? Yeah, it's basically an apology. An apology towards all of the like uh, Chinese that were like denied burial at the cemetery. And we took pictures of it and we tried to find more information online and we went to our archives. Can you just elaborate a little more on um, the Chinese Americans experience that you learned about and how did you learn about those acts of discrimination? Okay, well there was one where they didn't get paid mm-hmm. like uh, white people would. And we saw that Silverton wasn't the only town that was rude to them. A mm-hmm. lot of mining towns were mm-hmm. like very racist towards and like a lot of it was because the Chinese people were really good at mining and like they were scared that they were going to take their jobs and they made them hike from Silverton to Durango, Colorado on the train track, even if the train was running. Uh, Colorado's capital, Denver, used to have a Chinatown, Mm -hmm. but it got destroyed. Tell me more about the learning experience of how you learned this history. We went hiking all the way to where like the Chinese gardens. Yeah, we went to a hike towards where they used to have the Chinese gardens. And it was actually a perfect place because it was flat mm-hmm. and there was water. Mm-hmm. Like the Chinese vegetables grow really high up, like good and high elevation. We went on a hike to see where they planted their garden, but it didn't look like there was a garden there. They had to walk three miles to get to their garden because they were excluded. So we are making a garden with things they grew in Silverton. This is our way to help make it fair. That is so amazing. Did what you learn about Chinese Americans change your opinion about anything? It's that they went through a lot. Yeah. And they suffered a lot just because of their race. And then still today, they're getting blamed for stuff like the coronavirus. Yeah, like the that. coronavirus. And like they're getting really hated on like till now. And it's like really messed up. And it would have never known about that because that's how good they had it covered up that nobody really knew about that going on ever it shows how like selfish people are that they tried to cover up their mistakes that they did and how badly they treated a group of people for no reason just because they came to work and like now in Silverton a bunch of like Mexicans come to work in town Mm -hmm. and that's awesome I feel like we need more people more diverse city in Silverton we need more people of color how is the history of that experience is that being documented right now that's a great question. Mm. Is that accurate? Yeah. yeah, but there's not enough. What would you like to study about Mexican or other? I would really like to see how long Mexicans have been living in Silverton because Silverton used to be part of the Mexico Mex- side. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we used to be Mexico. We used to be Mexico, exactly where we are. Mm-hmm. But, and I would just like to see what changed after that, if there were still Mexicans living in the area or if they were all pushed to the Texas side. Yeah. We need to have more information about different cultures in our museum because we need to remember all history. 
It is important to bring this up so we do not make the same mistake again. There's an idea about culturally responsive teaching called windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. Rooting Sims Bishop is a scholar and the mother of multicultural literature. She said, books are sometimes windows, offering views of the world that may be real or imagined, familiar or strange. These windows are also sliding glass doors, and readers have only to walk through in imagination to become part of whatever world has been created and recreated by the author. When lighting conditions are just right, however, a window can also be a mirror. Literature transforms human experience and reflects it back to us. We can see our own lives and experiences as a part of the larger human experience. So, students need to see their own stories reflected in the curriculum, as well as the stories of others. Then they see how their stories relate to the stories of others. But they have to have all three of those, the windows, the mirrors, and the sliding glass doors, to feel like they are part of the larger human experience. Thank you to the students at Silverton, Alejandro and Corelli, and their teacher, Whitney Gaskell. Thank you to Kristen and Ingrid Wong. My producers are Bill Healy, Katie Schneider-Gumeron, Rosa Gaia, and our music producer is Sean Brennan. Next time on Belonging, we speak with my niece, Jory, again, and we have really exciting news. We have a collaboration with Jory and a young artist named Laurie from Chicago. This is Erica Young. Thank you for listening to Belonging.